This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 67b, The Battle of Megiddo, a dramatic reading. Today's episode is, well, it's what you'd expect. It's a dramatic reading of The Battle of Megiddo, as it was written by Tutmos III and his royal scribes. The text in question comes from the walls of Karnak Temple, where Tutmos ordered that it be inscribed in order to immortalize and commemorate his victories. As part of his larger dedication to the god Amun, which took place at the temple, the text was inscribed in living hieroglyphs, and the plunder from this campaign was donated to many of the temple treasuries. To help me bring this story to life, I have enlisted the help of several podcasters from the Agora Podcast Network. I thank them all individually at the end. They have given life to various characters that pop up in the story. Characters like the generals, the soldiers, and of course, that hated enemy of Kadesh, who was causing Tutmos III so much trouble. In the interests of a disclaimer, I should note that I gave my readers some liberal instructions. While they stick as closely as possible to the ancient text, occasionally there are small embellishments or additions, just to give some extra flavour to what can otherwise be some fairly standard lines. Don't worry, it's all within the spirit of the ancient text, and there are very few editorial changes, just some small embellishments. With that out of the way, let's get on with it. The Battle of Megiddo by the Third. Now, the account of the Battle of Megiddo, as written by Tutmos III and inscribed on the walls of Karnak. Translation by Toby Wilkinson, from his 2016 volume, Writings from Ancient Egypt. First, the introduction by the royal scribe. The Horus Mighty Bull, appearing in splendour in the city of Thebes. The King of Upper and Lower Egypt, Lord of the Two Lands, Menkapara, Son of Re. His majesty commanded that his victories, which his father Amun had given to him, be set down upon a stone stealer in the temple of Karnak. This was done in order to record each campaign by name, together with the plunder which his majesty brought back, and the revenues of all foreign lands which his father Ray has given to him. Thank you, scribe. Now we move directly to the voice of Tutmos III as he narrates his great accomplishments. Year 22, fourth month of the growing season, day 25. 
His Majesty passed the fortress of Charu on the first campaign of victory to repel those who were attacking the borders of Egypt. He went in valor, in victory, in power, and in justification. Now for a long period of years, those enemies had ruled this land which was plundered, every man enslaved before the chiefs who were in Avaris, that is, the Hyksos. For it happened in the time of others, that the garrison was there in the town of Sharuhin, while from Yerej to the ends of the earth, all had fallen into rebellion against his majesty. The new year passed. Year 23, first month of the harvest season, day 4. The day of the festival of the king's coronation. He came to the town called Seized by the Ruler, Gaza being its name in Syrian. Year 23, first month of the harvest season, day 5. Departing from Gaza in valor, in victory, in strength and in justification, to overthrow that cowardly enemy and to widen the borders of Egypt, just as his father Amun-Ra, mighty and victorious, had commanded that he should conquer. Year 23, first month of the harvest season, day 16. The army came to the town of Yehem. His Majesty ordered a council of war here with his victorious army, saying, That cowardly enemy of Kadesh has come and he has entered Megiddo. He is there at this very moment, having gathered to himself the chiefs of all the foreign lands that used to be loyal to Egypt, together with those lands as far as Mitanni, Syria, and Kedu, along with their horses, their armies, and their people. And he is saying, reportedly, <laughs> I have arisen to fight against his majesty in Megiddo. I will crush his army under my chariot wheels. The screams of mourning women will haunt the night. This is the end of him. Truly he is a monster. So, you're my generals. Tell me, what shall we do to crush this enemy? Say what is in your mind. For context, the generals were being asked to give their opinion on three different possibilities. To the north and south, there were safe, accessible routes towards Megiddo. But in the centre, there was a dangerous, but possibly advantageous route to be taken. Tutmos wanted their opinion. The generals in unison replied, How can we go upon this road, which threatens to be narrow? It is reported to us there are enemies there waiting outside the canyon, and that they are a multitude. In the narrowness of the canyon, will not horse have to follow horse and man follow man? Shall our advance guard be fighting, while the rear guard is still waiting to depart this camp? Look, great lord, there are still two other roads. One road will carry us to Tanakh in the south. The other will bring us north so that we can attack Megiddo from that direction. Let our victorious lord proceed upon the road that he desires, of course, but do not cause us to go by this difficult, narrow road. Then messages were brought from that cowardly enemy, repeating the reported state of affairs that they had said before. What was said by the king in the majesty of the palace, life, prosperity, health? As Ra lives for me and loves me, as my father Amun favours me, as my nose may be rejuvenated in life and dominion, my majesty will proceed on this central path. Let those of you who wish go on the paths that you spoke of, and let those of you who wish come in my majesty's following. 
if I take any other path, they will say, those enemies who are the abominations of Ra, Ha! Has his majesty gone forth upon the other path because he's afraid of us? That is what they will say. But the whole army said in front of his majesty, May your father Amun, lord of the thrones of the two lands, who presides over Karnak, act according to your will. Behold, we will be in your majesty's following, wherever your majesty goes, for a servant will always be behind his master. Then his majesty commanded that the whole army be addressed thus. He said, Your victorious lord will guard your steps on that path which narrows. Then his majesty made an oath, saying, I will not let my victorious army go in front of my majesty in this situation. For his majesty had resolved to proceed himself at the head of his army. Then every man was given his marching orders, horse following horse, with his majesty at the head of this army. So Tutmos had decided upon the dangerous but audacious route through the central pass. This wasn't what his generals wanted, but they and the soldiers would follow him. So the Egyptian army advanced to the mouth of that central pass. There they set up camp overnight and prepared to advance the following morning. That morning came, and the narrative continues. Year 23, first month of the harvest season, day 19. Waking up in the tent of life, prosperity, and health at the town of Aruna. An expedition northward by my majesty, with my father, Amun-Ra, lord of the thrones of the two lands, opening the way before me. Ra-Horakti, stealing the hearts of my victorious army. My father, Amun, strengthening my majesty's sword arm. And Horus, casting protection over my majesty. Emergence by his majesty at the head of his army, deployed in multiple units. He did not find a single enemy. There, that is the Egyptians, southern wing was at Tanakh. Their northern wing was at the southern bend of the Kinar Valley. Then his majesty called out upon his path, They are fallen, that cowardly enemy. Amun, give praise to him. Pay honour to the might of his majesty, on account of the greatness of his sword arm before all the gods. For he protects the rear of his majesty's army in Aruna. While the rear of his majesty's victorious army was at the town of Aruna, the vanguard had come out into the Kina Valley, and they filled the entrance of this valley. Then, gathering in front of his majesty, life, prosperity, and health, the soldiers of his army said to him, Behold, his majesty goes forth with his victorious army. It has filled the valley. Let the rear of the army come forth now, so that they can also fight against these barbarians. Then we shall not need to worry about the rear guard. The soldiers now beseeched Tutmos not to endanger himself, but to stand back and let the vanguard go ahead, while he waited for the rest to catch up. Let our victorious lord listen to us this time, and let our lord protect the rear of his army and his people. His majesty listened to his troops, and he made fast in the open, and he sat down there to watch over the rear of his victorious army. When the last of the lead troops had emerged onto the canyon path, morning had turned to afternoon. His Majesty arrived at the south of Megiddo, on the bank of the Kinar Brook, just as the seventh hour of the day had elapsed, that is, approximately 1pm. Then camp was pitched there for His Majesty, and the whole army was told, We shall advance to fight that wretched foe in the morning, so equip yourselves, men, prepare your weapons. 
Tutmos now pauses slightly to describe life in the camp on the night before battle. Resting in the camp of life, prosperity, and health. Dealing with official business. Distributing rations to the troops. Posting the watch of the army. The officers were telling them, Be steady of heart. Be watchful. Watch for life at the tent of the king. Awakening in the tent of life, prosperity, and health, his majesty was told, The land is secure, and the infantry of the south and the north are as well. So, year 23, first month of the harvest season, day 21. The festival of the new moon, precisely. Appearance of the king at daybreak. The order was given to the whole army to march. His majesty set out in a chariot of electrum, equipped in the splendour of his weaponry like a strong-armed Horus, the lord of action, like Montu the Theban, his father Amun strengthening his arms. The southern wing of his majesty's army was at a hill south of the Kina brook. The northern wing was to the northwest of Megiddo, and his majesty was at their centre. Atum protected his body against opponents, and the might of Seth was his body's strength. Then his majesty prevailed at the head of his army. When they, the enemy, saw his majesty prevailing over them, they fled in panic towards Megiddo with faces of fear, abandoning their horses and their chariots of gold and silver. By pulling on sheets, they were hoisted up into the town, for the people had closed the town upon them, and they had to lower sheets to hoist them up. Now, if his majesty's army had not set its heart to plundering the possessions of the enemy, they would have captured Megiddo at that moment, as the cowardly enemy of Kadesh and the cowardly enemy of this town were dragged, scrambling to bring themselves inside. Fear of his majesty had entered their bodies and their arms were weak, just like his Uraeus prevailed against them. Then their horses and chariots of gold and silver were plundered, being ready for the taking. Their casualties lay prostrate, like fish in the corner of a net, while his majesty's victorious army counted their belongings. Also taken as plunder was that wretched enemy's very tent, which was worked with silver. Then the whole army gave a shout of praise to Amun for the victory that he had granted to his son that day. They gave thanks to his majesty, extolling his victory. Then they presented the plunder that they had brought, consisting of severed hands, living captives, horses, chariots of gold and silver, and also plain ones. Then his majesty issued a command to his army, saying, Finish the job well, finish it well, my victorious army. Behold, all foreign lands are captured within this town today, according to Ra's command, so that every chief of every northern land is shut up inside it, and the capture of Megiddo is like the capture of a thousand towns. Finish the job thoroughly. Finish it. Then orders were given to the troop commanders to provision their troops and to let every man know his place. They measured the town, they encircled it with a ditch, and surrounded it with a palisade of green timber, hewn from all of the enemy's orchards. His majesty himself was upon a watchtower to the east of the town, keeping watch over it night and day. Megiddo was surrounded by a wall, named Menkepera Tutmos Encircles the Asiatics. Guards were stationed at his majesty's camp, and they were told, Be steadfast, be vigilant. His majesty wants that not a single one of the enemy should come out beyond this wall, unless they are surrendering. Now, 
everything that his majesty did to this town, to that wretched enemy, and to his wretched army, was recorded with the details of the day, the name, the name of the army unit, and the name of the troop commanders. This was recorded in writing in this inscription. They are also recorded on papyrus and kept in the temple of Amun to this day. Now the chiefs of this foreign land came on their bellies to kiss the ground before the might of his majesty, to beg for breath for their nostrils on account of the greatness of his sword arm and the extent of Amun's power over every foreign land. All of the chiefs captured by the might of his majesty were carrying their tribute of silver, gold, lapis lazuli and turquoise, and bearing grain, wine, cattle and sheep for his majesty's army. One group of them carried tribute all the way back to Egypt on the journey south. Then his majesty appointed new chiefs for every town that had fallen. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. At this point, the account, as written by Tatmos, ends, and it switches back to the royal scribes. They describe, in meticulous detail, all the booty that was brought back from this battle and campaign. Why do they do this? Well, it's not just showing off about what Tutmos and his military might had achieved, or what the soldiers had captured. It's also partly a litany of what was brought back for the glory of the god Amun. For you see, when Tutmos returned to Egypt, he donated a significant portion of the spoils to the temple of Karnak, and to the temples of other various gods. This was going to become a standard custom during the New Kingdom, and it would make the temples fabulously wealthy on the spoils of empire. So, the scribes now tally up the booty. Tally of the booty brought back by His Majesty's army from the town of Megiddo. 340 living prisoners, 83 hands, 2,041 mares, 191 foals, 6 stallions, a chariot wrought with gold, its pole of gold belonging to the enemy of Kadesh, a beautiful chariot wrought with gold belonging to the chief of Megiddo, 892 chariots of Megiddo's wretched army, for a total of 924 chariots, a beautiful suit of bronze armour belonging to the enemy of Kadesh, a beautiful suit of bronze armour belonging to the chief of Megiddo, 200 suits of armour total belonging to their wretched army. We also took 502 bows. Behold, the army of His Majesty took 1,929 large cattle, 2,000 small cattle, 20,500 white small cattle. The list of that which was afterward taken by the king from the households of the enemy in Yenoam, in Nuges, 
and in Heron K. Rule, together with all the goods of those cities which submitted. All those were brought to his majesty and included 474 womenfolk, together with the chieftains and 38 of their elite bodyguards, 87 children of the rulers as hostages, and five of their bodyguards, 1,796 male and female slaves, together with their children, 103 non-combatants who surrendered because of famine, total prisoners, 2,503. Besides that, His Majesty also took flat dishes of costly stone and gold, various vessels, a large two-handled vase of the work of Karu, vases, flat dishes, dishes, various drinking vessels, three large kettles, 87 knives, all amounting to 784 debon in weight, gold rings found in the hands of the artificers, and silver in many rings, 966 debon and one cadet, a silver statue in beaten work, the head of gold, the staff with human faces, six chairs of that foe, of ivory, ebony, and carob wood, wrought with gold, six footstools belonging to them, six large tables of ivory and carob wood, a staff of carob wood, wrought with gold and all costly stones, a scepter belonging to that foe, all of it wrought with gold, a statue of that foe, of ebony wrought with gold, the head of which was inlaid with lapis lazuli, vessels of bronze, much clothing of that foe. That brings us to the conclusion of the Battle of Megiddo, written by the Third and his attendant scribes. My special thanks to the various members of the Agora Podcast Network who contributed to this show. If you check the episode notes for this, you will see the shows on which these podcasters work. In no particular order, I want to thank Travis J. Dow, Ben Jacobs, Steve Guerra, Chris Stewart, Thomas Daly, Eric Fogg, David Crowther, and Elias Belhadad. Thank you, folks. You did some wonderful work. Incidentally, the Agora Podcast Network's featured podcast for the month of November is The History of Islam by Elias Belhadad. The History of Islam is, as you can imagine, an extremely important subject to understand in this day and age. Elias has taken on a mammoth task, charting the birth, development, rise, and context of Islam, the way it spread across the Near East, far over to India and even China, down into Africa, along towards Spain and the Atlantic. Finally, he charts the development of Islam through the medieval and modern periods, and how it arrived in the form that it is today, so diverse, so multicultural, and also so controversial. The History of Islam podcast is available on iTunes and any podcast app that you may use. Check it out. I recommend it. Coming up in the next episode is the aftermath of the Battle of Megiddo, in which the fortress itself must decide whether to surrender or not, and how Tutmos continues his wars in Syria and Palestine to deal with those enemies that are still at large. We'll see you soon.
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic, and then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here.